This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles this evening to Jeremiah chapter 11. Jeremiah 11, we'll be reading verses 18 through chapter 12, verse 17. 11, 18 through 12, 17. Hear the word of God. The Lord made it known to me, and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me that devised schemes, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause." Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life and say, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine and none of them shall be left. For I will bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth, the year of their punishment. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root, they grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of the field wither? For evil, the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, he will not see our latter end. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of Jordan? For even your brothers and the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me. Therefore, I hate her. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go, assemble all the wild beasts, bring them to devour. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it a desolation. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. Upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come, for the sword of the Lord devours from one end of the land to the other. No flesh has peace. They have sown wheat and reaped thorns. They have tired themselves out, but profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvests because of the fierce anger of the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord, concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land, and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I've plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them again each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We pray, Father, that as we study this passage, that you would make us wise for salvation, not only to receive it as we trust in Christ, but to grow in it and to see more and more the greatness of it and the implications of it for our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. William Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, captures the shock of betrayal almost as nothing else can. Caesar, in his dying moments, discovers that among those who have plotted and are now in the act of his assassination, among them was his close friend, or shall we say formerly close friend, Marcus Brutus. And Caesar's last words, et tu, Brute, and you, Brutus, then fall Caesar. Leads us to almost palpably feel the heartbreak of Caesar when he realizes that one of his most trusted friends, one of his closest companions, has taken part in his death. No doubt Jeremiah knew that his message of the judgment of God would not be popular. He must have understood that there would be those who resisted it and resisted him. And he knew that resistance would be painful. And it was painful. It was more painful than he realized because that resistance, that opposition, came from a place that was near to his heart, his hometown of Anathoth. And not only was this emotionally painful to Jeremiah, it was also physically dangerous, because not only did they not like Jeremiah and his message, but they also wanted to silence him. They were plotting to kill him. Now, as you read through the Bible, you find other uh, incidences of betrayal. You find King David, who betrayed his loyal servant Uriah when he sent him to the front line, deliberately seeking his death to cover up David's own sin with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Of course, the most notorious betrayal of all, that of Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. And the reality is, most people at one time or another will disappoint us. They will let us down. Not necessarily outright betrayal, but but. Inevitably, we're going to disappoint one another in some way. We'll do something. We'll say something that hurts. And so while we do trust in people, we do count on people. Ultimately, our trust, ultimately, our dependence is in God alone. He will always be there. He will always do for us what is in our best interest, although we may not necessarily see how that is so at the time. But we know that he will. He will never betray us. Well, when Jeremiah 
had enemies all around when life didn't seem to be going quite the way he would have liked it to have gone, he turns to the Lord, trusts in the Lord. He spoke to God, as we see, not in pious politeness, but with a frank and brutal honesty. He had two concerns, basically, as we've read through this passage. His danger from his own townspeople and others eventually, but here from his own townsmen. And more generally, uh, another concern he had was, was why the wicked, why the wicked, people who plot against God's own prophets, why they seem to prosper, why they seem to be doing well in life. We know you and I have similar needs to those of Jeremiah. We, like Jeremiah, look to God for protection And we, like Jeremiah, look to God for vindication. Well, first let's look at Jeremiah and how he looks to God for protection in dangerous circumstances. Pretty scary times. Have you ever been going along thinking things were one way? And suddenly it comes to the realization that things are very different from what you thought, maybe with a person or with a situation. It's pretty disconcerting, isn't it? You realize the real situation. Well, that's what Jeremiah experienced. He was going along, obedient to God, declaring his word, being faithful. Of course, people disagreed with him at times, but that was okay. Just opened up the door for a good theological discussion, right? Well, some had even told him to stop saying things he was saying, but they couldn't be serious. Jeremiah knew his message was a hard one, but it was a divine one. He was speaking for the Lord. It was God's word. It was God's message. And in Jeremiah, in verse 19, says, Boy, was I wrong. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I didn't know it was against me they devised schemes, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. The day when Jeremiah realized they were talking about him. Jeremiah says, I didn't have a clue. I was, I was like a little lamb being led along, coaxed along with a gentle voice. No clue. I was being led to the slaughterhouse. I was absolutely blindsided when I learned they were plotting to kill me. Well, how did he know? Verse 18 tells us, the Lord made it known to me, and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds. Somehow the Lord made Jeremiah aware of what was going on, what their whispering together, what their knowing glances were all about. They either did it through some direct revelation or somebody spilled the beans and let Jeremiah know what was going on. But then in verse 20, Jeremiah immediately appeals to the Lord for help. But O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause." In other words, to you, Lord, I'm trusting in you. I'm counting on you. I depend on you. And he recognizes that the Lord not only knows our outward behavior, but knows our hearts as well. He knows our minds. Not only does he know the murderous ideas his enemies had, but the Lord knows that Jeremiah is trusting in him. The Lord knows that Jeremiah's protection ultimately is in the Lord, and he appeals to him for that protection and for the Lord to show his vengeance on his enemies for their hateful ways. Well, in verses 21 through 23, the Lord answers Jeremiah. And here, for the first time, we learn that those who are plotting against Jeremiah are the men of his hometown 
of Anathoth, just north northeast of Jerusalem in a little ways. Verse 21, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. None of them shall be left, for I will bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth, the year of their punishment. You see, the Lord will protect Jeremiah. He has more work for him to do. He has not completed his course. He's not finished the work. And the Lord will bring punishment on his enemies, on those who reject him and the word of the Lord that he brings. Jeremiah was in great danger. Jeremiah was perfectly safe. It just depends on what perspective you take to look at it, man's or God's. See the uh, Anathothians, say that three times fast, could plot all they wanted. They could plan and scheme, but nothing was going to happen to Jeremiah outside God's will for him. Because God, not man, is sovereign. Jeremiah was in great danger. Jeremiah was perfectly safe. Isn't it a great thing, isn't it liberating to know that you are in God's hands? You may not have anyone plotting to rub you out, at least not that you know of, but we do have real concerns, real fears, real dangers in this world, the economy, our financial well-being, injury and disease, whether in ourselves, our spouse, our children, friends, spiritual, the political condition of our nation, the threat of terrorism, death itself. There are a lot of things to be concerned about in the world. We mentioned them in our, in our prayer time just a few minutes ago. All those things, all those fears, all those concerns, all those threats are answered by this one thought. God is sovereign. God is in control. It's for good reason that believers treasure Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And we know that. But do you know that? Not as a Bible verse, but as a daily existential reality that whatever tomorrow might hold, it is brought into your life, by the hand of a loving and wise Heavenly Father who is going to use that to accomplish glory for himself and good for you. Now that certainly doesn't mean that nothing hard, nothing heartbreaking, nothing emotionally, nothing physically painful might happen to you in this life. But it does mean that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It does mean that nothing will manage to somehow pluck you out of God's hand. It doesn't mean that somehow God uh, was diverted, his attention diverted, and the world has spun out of control. We may suffer some terrible things along life's path. And yet God uses those. God works through those to bring glory to himself and good to you and to me. He's shaping us. He's preparing us for heaven. Well, Jeremiah says, I, was, I discovered I was like a clueless little lamb. I was just being led to the slaughter. But he turned to the Lord, and he found out that he was perfectly safe. 
But protection was only one of his concerns, and it's only one of our concerns. Jeremiah had another concern, and that was vindication. He wanted to be shown to be right. He didn't want his enemies to go on gloating indefinitely. And don't you and I want that? We pray for God's mercy on our enemies. We pray that their eyes would be opened, those who scorn our faith. But don't you want to be shown to be right? I do. Jeremiah did. We see that in chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. Jeremiah is struggling here with the same problem that King David's choir director, Asaph, struggled with in Psalm 73. Why did God's people, the righteous, seem to have it so hard? Why do those who are faithful to the covenant, those who want to obey the Lord, those who want to walk with him, seem to struggle, seem to suffer in life? And the profane and the ungodly and the wicked seem so carefree and everything just seems to go their way and life is good. Those who are arrogant, those who are selfish, those who are cruel, those who mock God's law, those who seem to dare God to do anything about it. We see that in in, in verse 4. They say, he will not see our latter end, which seems to be a way of saying, you know, he's... God doesn't know how this is going to turn out. God's not going to do anything. Why do those people seem to do so well? As Jeremiah puts it in verses 1 and 2, chapter 12, 1 and 2. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I, I need to have a word with you, Lord. I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all those who are treacherous thrive? You plant them. They take root. They grow. They produce fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their heart. That not sound a lot, a lot like the priests and the elders we were talking about this morning. The God talk. You're near in their mouth. To hear them talk, oh, they love and serve the Lord. But their hearts are far from you. Now, Jeremiah acknowledges in verse 3 that the Lord knows his own heart. Not that it's perfect, but that it is loyal. And he calls on the Lord to take his enemies and set them apart for the day of slaughter. Well, verses 5 through 17 make up the Lord's answer to this, uh, this second uh, appeal or complaint of his servant Jeremiah. Uh, it really has three parts. In verses 5 and 6, there's a word of warning. In verses 7 through 13, there's a word of judgment. And the Lord responds in verses 14 through 17 with a word of grace. It's a lengthy response, but it itself breaks up into these three parts. Well, first of all, in verses 5 and 6, the Lord gives a word of warning. He warns Jeremiah that his danger, the threats to him, are only going to increase. If you've raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how are you going to run with the horses? Yeah, if if this has got you scared, I got bad news for you, because you're still in the minor leagues. He says, if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? Detect a mild rebuke there. Jeremiah seems blindsided by this plot against him. He says, if here in your own homeland you're so trusting, what are you going to do when you're really in hostile circumstances? You're already shaking. What's going to happen when the heat really gets turned up, Jeremiah? Well, he he warns him. He also warns Jeremiah that the threat to him is even more heartbreaking than he knows. It's not just his townspeople. 
It's his own family. Who are after him. And who are not to be trusted. Do not believe them. Though they speak friendly words to you. Your brothers. The house of your father. Not just his hometown. But his family. So there's a word of warning. That it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And even his own family are part of the opposition. But then there's a word of judgment in verses 7 through 13. This is really what Jeremiah wants. He didn't want to hear what he just heard, but he does want to hear this. The Lord reassures Jeremiah that the wicked, while they may seem to prosper in this world, do so only for a time. But God is fully aware of their wickedness. And they will only have a limited time to continue in it. Their day of reckoning will come. In verse 8, God acknowledges the rebellion of his people. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She's lifted up her voice against me, therefore I hate her. And the Lord judges them through foreign nations, whom he likens in verse 9 to vicious animals that have uh, circled them. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go, assemble all the wild beasts, bring them to devour. And then in verse 12, he's more literal. Upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come. For the sword of the Lord devours from one end of the land to the other. No flesh has peace. A reference to foreign invaders coming in, likened to wild animals, hungry and ready to rip their prey apart. Well, Judah has reaped what it has sown. Verse 13, they have sown wheat. Reap thorns. They've tired themselves out, but profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvests because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Of course, Paul echoes that in Galatians. What a man reaps, that will he also sow. And so there's a, a word of warning to Jeremiah. There's also this word of judgment that God recognizes their rebellion. God recognizes their sin. Jeremiah is not informing the Lord of something he doesn't already know. But then... And admittedly, a little bit rare in Jeremiah. A word of grace. A word of grace. Remember how Habakkuk, wrestling with this same problem in Habakkuk 1, complaining that the wicked seem to have their way and continue on, is uh, is astounded by that, doubly astounded when the Lord tells him that, yes, he is going to judge them, but he's going to bring the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, to come upon them in judgment. (laughs) At this point, Habakkuk's about to pull his hair out. What? They're even more wicked than we are. You know, how, can, how can you do that? He struggles with that. Well, here in verse 14, God acknowledges that. He acknowledges that um, you know, he, he sometimes works in ways that seem strange to his servants. Verse 14, thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors, who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. But notice what he says. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land, and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. Now he's talking about these, these nations, these pagan nations all around, the evil neighbors who touch the heritage I've given my people Israel to inherit. Okay? People like the Babylonians. But this is what he says about them. I'll pluck them up from their land. Jeremiah is, you know, yes, Lord, get them. And I'll pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, 
I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them again each to his heritage and each to his land. Plucked up here refers not to judgment, but to deliverance. He will restore Judah. And not only that, but he will bring the nations into Judah and bless them together. Grace for everybody. Just a hint of Pentecost. But this dwelling together with God's blessing has a condition attached to it. And it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal. Remember, Israel and Judah tended to absorb more of the pagan religion of the lands around them, engaging in Baal worship. Well, the Lord lays down the condition here. I'm going to pluck Judah, restore her, the nations that have have devoured her also, and I'm going to bring them in, and if they will learn the ways of my people, if they will learn to swear by my name, to call on my name, to invoke me, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. Covenant faithfulness is required of all of God's people. Jew or Gentile, if the nations of the world are to be saved, if you and I are to be saved, then we must turn from our idols, our bales, and serve the Lord and call on Him and trust in Him, the one true and living God. Bad news. You and I violate God's covenant. You and I have and continue to violate God's covenant, but the good news is that that covenant has been kept perfectly and completely and fully for us by Christ. Christ is not only the initiator and the ratifier of the covenant, Christ is himself the fulfillment of the covenant. Christ never once called on the name of Baal. Christ always, always obeyed the Lord. But Jeremiah is very clear here. Not just any God will do. Not just any Savior is acceptable. You can call on Yahweh. You can call on Baal. It just matters that you're sincere. You know, the Scriptures, just like Jeremiah, the Scriptures reject that. That there's only one name given among men by which we must be saved. There's no room here in Jeremiah for this all paths lead to God mentality. Swear by my name. Call on my name, but if any nation will not listen, I'll destroy it, says the Lord. There's no room for this. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Jeremiah is very clear about that. The whole Bible is very clear about that. The apostles are very clear that Jesus is the only way. Jesus himself is very clear on that. And unfortunately in the church, even in the church, even among professing Christians, we sort of lost sight of that. Do you see the exclusivity of what Jeremiah is saying here? Call him my name, not Baal, not anybody else. My name alone. Even in the church, we've gone kind of soft on that for some reason. On uh, June 20th, 2005, CNN aired an interview with Larry King interviewing uh, popular preacher Joel Osteen. Osteen said he wasn't so sure about what happens to people who reject Christ. Well, Larry King asked him, what about Jews, Muslims, other unbelievers? 
They're wrong, aren't they? Asked Larry King. Talk about pitching you a softball. All but put the words in his mouth. Osteen replied, well, these are his words. Well, I don't know if they believe they're wrong. I believe here's what the Bible teaches. And from the Christian faith, this is what I believe. But I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of my time, a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their religion, but I know they love God. And I don't know. I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. I know for me and what the Bible teaches, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. At two, Osteen. You know, it really is sad that Larry King seems to understand the implicate. Larry King seems to understand the implications of the gospel better than Joel Osteen. Osteen is pastor to the largest church in the United States, averaging some forty-three thousand attenders weekly. Osteen doesn't want to offend. Jeremiah had no such reservations. Jesus had no such reservations. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Where Osteen's in a fog, where so many today are in a fog, Jesus could not be more plain. But those who do come through Jesus come to the Father. The Father who has protected them all along. The Father in heaven who will vindicate them. Will vindicate us at last. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are our protector. That you are the one who will one day show that we are your people. That our message is true that those who have trusted in Christ are saved, are in glory. And those who have not will experience your judgment, your righteous and holy and just judgment forever. Father, we want to be vindicated, but we also want people to be saved. And so, Father, yes, we pray you would glorify yourself. Yes, we pray you would triumph over sin, over evil, over all evildoers, even as we pray for their salvation. Father, we pray that they might have the same grace that you have shown to us. Father, we pray that your church would stand firm on the gospel, that there is no other way to be with you than through Christ, that we are doing them no favors to acknowledge their sincerity, but deprive them of Jesus. Father, we pray for the salvation of your and our enemies. But Father, those you will not save, we pray that you would glorify yourself and vindicate us by your everlasting judgment on them, even as we experience your everlasting salvation by your grace. Father, we don't deserve it. We're no better than they are. But we have received your grace. And so, Father, we pray that in this life, And in the life to come and for the life to come, you would protect us and keep us and vindicate us. Lord, we join with Jeremiah in that prayer. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.